Hello, people and plants and pets and everything else that's out there. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Solejo. Did you know that speaking with plants makes them grow better? We're doing the heavy lifting for you plant owners out there. We are podcast fertilizer. <laughs> Not to say that we're crap. Right, no. right, right. No, no, no. We are life-giving. This is a show where we talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and elsewhere who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. So on this episode, we speak with Jocelyn Jackson, the founder of Just Us Kitchen, a project that provides healing food experiences for Black women and femmes. And she's a co-founder of the People's Kitchen Collective. When we do this radical gathering in the midst of radical hospitality, it is one of the most dangerous acts that we can actually participate in. Jocelyn is a Bay Area chef and community organizer who really knows how to reconcile those two worlds. Every day we interact with food to find our survival. And the traditions of black and brown folks are just foundational to that relationship. Before we like really jump headlong into this interview, we should talk about what the People's Kitchen Collective is. I remember the first time I ran into them, because they've kind of been around for a while in some form or another. Right, and, and it's not just Jocelyn. It's her, and it's Sakib Keval, and Sita Kuratomi Balmik, right? There you go, yeah. And I remember they would have these dinners, and this is years ago, um, and it was like a pay-what-you-can basis kind of thing. And the demand was super high that uh, like people were getting tickets and like reselling them on Craigslist. So they were they, like being scalped. Yeah, they were being scalped for these for this like underground kind of thing. And I remember that was the first time I had heard about them. Right, like I, I hadn't gone to one of those things. And remember, this is like a food oriented group. And I remember in 2017 they were at they were in the East Bay at this uh, protest against um, Urban Shield. So like. Urban Shield is like a car show for police, right? That's that's really what it is. Yeah. Except and, it's tanks. Yeah, except it's tanks and, <laughs> and ammunition and Ooh. you know. Uh so yeah, so they were at an event that uh was kind of protesting the existence of that cop car show basically. The militarization of the police. Exactly. And uh I remember thinking like, man, this is it's so interesting to see them here as well. Like they are uh it's a group that knows no bounds. Like they will fight for a lot of different causes. Right. And like I think they kind of show the the futility of the question of like what's food got to do with politics? There you go. Right? Like they just bring it. Yeah. I think it's really hard to explain what they do otherwise. You know, like they are a community organizing group. They do food, they do art, uh, they talk about justice. You know, they're so all encompassing, but in the way that like our experience of those things is all encompassing. Yeah. How I came to know them, actually, was a little bit later than you, but it was through their um, From the Farm to the Kitchen to the Table project. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, you know, it was this whole thing where they really problematized the idea of farm to table, and they put this really strong emphasis on the two of that phrase, right? Like, how does product, how does produce, how does food get from the farm to the table, right? Whose labor is it? Who upholds this system? Who is the kind of glue of the food system and they analyze that whole relationship so they collected home remedies from people of like all kinds of different backgrounds and cultures from remedies for colds and fevers to remedies for homophobia and misogyny and that was the to the kitchen part like they they made this medicine cabinet full of like all folks home remedies and with little descriptions of what they do right and then there was to the table which was the 
dinner that they did about Japanese internment. And they had like really interesting intergenerational like discussions of what that was like and what food people craved during that time period. But finally, there was To the Streets, their kind of capstone of that thing, yeah. um, which I talk about with Jocelyn. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm so excited. And, you know, ever since I first kind of gazed upon you from afar at the long table at the To the Streets meal, I've been so looking forward to this conversation. Um, you know, that was my introduction to you. Just this long table in Oakland. And I think about it sometimes and it feels like a relic of such a long time ago, but it's had such reverberations. You know, I, I still run into people who were at that meal and we talk about it. We were so excited about it. You know, can you tell us about just, you know, I guess it's been a year, two years. My God. It's been two years and uh, time and it's trickery. Uh, but yes, you're referencing the last in a four part community meal series that we called um, from the farm to the kitchen, to the table, to the streets. And it was originally conceived as a project to really get to the heart of reclaiming the spaces in a false testimony of farm to table and reclaiming those spaces where black and brown bodies have had contribution for millennia and have often been invisibilized, have been disrespected or appropriated and really craving the liberatory moments where we can share in the celebration and the struggle of represencing ourselves in this industry, in this movement, in this circumstance of every day we interact with food to come, to find our survival. And the traditions of black and brown folks are just foundational uh, to that relationship. And it's been important for us to be in that work. Um, for over, almost over a decade at this point, uh, in some iteration as People's Kitchen and People's Kitchen Collective. So this whole arc was about a year and a half uh, in the making. We knew we needed to not do anything for people. We needed to do something with people. And when I say people, I mean community at the very, very specific ground level of West Oakland. This is a place that we've been committed to for years. And so one of the things I always want to say out loud when it comes to this idea of organizing and movement work and mutual aid is don't try to find an audience. Don't try to find a community. Really dig into where you are. And for us, that was West Oakland. And so we spent a lot of time at community meetings and with, um, you know, folks that we have collaborated with in the past to build deeper relationship and trust. Because as we all know, movement work only moves at the speed of trust. And so it was a really intensive, worthwhile experience that was difficult at many times. And we got, we got, we got taught over and over as far as what was really um, needed and wanted uh, in a space of a large community meal gathering. And so when we had that dreaming of what is possible um, to make a, a really dynamic moment, not only community building, but service to community, that table that was two blocks long in the middle of West Oakland on a block that has experienced gentrification actively, 
at the corner where little Bobby Hutton was murdered by police uh, and where the timing aligned with being the birthday weekend of birth, both Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm X. And as many of us know, Yuri Kochiyama was the woman who held Malcolm X's head when he was murdered. This confluence of being at the corner of history and legacy was so powerful because the invitation and the permission was for each person to show up fully as the expressed dream of those that came before them. So it was like around April 2018 when they had that 500-person family-style, picnic-style, family reunion-esque meal in West Oakland. It's a giant family. It's a big old family. And the important thing about that was where it was located. It was at uh, 28th and Magnolia Streets, uh, which is where Bobby Hutton, a uh, Black Panther recruit, I think he might have been their first treasurer. He was only like 16, 17 years old, uh, was shot and killed by Oakland police. So it's significant ground in the civil rights movement and the story of the Black Panther Party um, in the East Bay. I got there uh, and saw the crowds and mingled a little bit and saw how many people were there. And it was just, uh, I knew there was going to be hundreds, but I was kind of like overwhelmed (laughs) by the size. And it was a beautiful thing to see, but you stayed for the whole meal and I would love to hear about it. Yeah, no, um, I was visiting. I didn't even live here at the time. I was visiting from Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) Was randomly there at the same time as this event. And um, I took a, I think I took an Uber there and the driver was like, where are you going? I'm like, I don't know. I don't don't live here. And he was like, that's a funny place to be going. I was like, well, you know what? I'm sure it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's this huge table, and um, people were, I mean, this is, like, it's such an interesting confluence of, like, all these things that are now a part of my life as the food critic and the chronicle, you know? The the two guys from Cafe Ohlone, or oh, Makamham, were there. They, like, served their tea that they helped gather in the Oakland Hills, for instance. They had said a prayer um, in Chochenyo before the event. I was sitting across the table. I happened to be sitting across from like Rhea Masil, the owner of Reams. Oh, wow. But like the people around me during this meal, we were all having these really fun and interesting conversations about like history and politics and food and like the kind of work that the People's Kitchen Collective like was fostering. And you know, it was no coincidence. Like we're all there for a reason. But at the same time, it felt so nice to yeah. be in this context, to have this conversation where I didn't have to explain that food was a political like entity, that it was like a way we express our politics, personal ends, like, you know, on a macro scale. And it was so refreshing. And what you got too, I think, was uh, a really beautiful, kind of like perfect slice of what the Bay Area food scene is at its best. You know, if you go back like a couple of years, it, it's just everything seems so different then. But What I want to say is those events, the energy is perfect. Like everyone's there for it's a positive thing. Everyone's there for the same reasons. But it also makes people want to talk to each other. So like your introduction to the Bay Area food scene was just I don't think you could have picked a better thing to go to. I know. And I'm not an extrovert. Um people terrify me, especially strangers. (laughs) But like that it, it felt good. It was it wasn't an event that like depleted my energy. I get know? it. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. And like I feel like I had such a biased entry, but a very 
revealing an important one into the Bay Area food scene. Like yeah. the whole thing was the reason why I moved here. I can't believe that. <laughs> that is so shocking to me. That's like breaking news, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was one of the, I didn't tell Paolo, our previous editor who hired me this, but you know, the reason why I wanted to come here was because, and what I told him was like, people just want to have these conversations. And I was basing that entirely on this meal <laughs> um, in Oakland because I thought, okay, this is, people are ready for the kind of work I want to do. You know, they, they are so eager for it. I'm grateful for the way that you describe it. And, and I'm so grateful for that sort of testimony across the board from folks as far as what it felt to be present there. And I just want to, to highlight that feeling because one of the biggest tools of white supremacy and racism is separation. It's the feeling that is artificial that we are alone. And so when we do this radical gathering in the midst of radical hospitality, it is one of the most dangerous acts that we can actually participate in. Because there is that moment, like you said, like you described. I look around me and I'm speaking to people at the table and the feeling that I have is that folks were raised with the truth of liberation and freedom and independence and self-determination. It's not an after effect of unlearning. And that is such a rare, rare environment to be in. And it's the environment that we want to raise up as often as we can as People's Kitchen Collective and Justice Kitchen as well, because it is one of the primary places that we can find solace and safety and this ultimate experience of connection. Uh, that is at the heart of what this movement that is happening even today is really, really, really working toward. And I'm grateful for that feeling that we were able to create on the streets of West Oakland to be almost like a catalyst but more like a leverage moment. This is a moment that you can say is a before and after. And in life, I feel like as human beings, we are constantly in search of those moments where there was enough of a heart shift and a mind shift to project us into the brightest expression of our freedom and to do it together. So the cool thing about the People's Kitchen Collective is how, I don't know, they make it, look easy right tying right, food right. to activism um they make it work like they, they i've always been so skeptical perhaps because i grew up during the 9-11 era mm. about activism and the efficacy of it but like yeah i don't know <laughs> i mean maybe i'm just like a horrible bougie no, no 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 i do think that uh the, the bay area is home to a lot of activists or people that consider themselves activists but i've come to realize that not every social movement has the same kind of um, results as others. And I do think a lot of these group, a lot of these activist groups benefit from strong leadership, I think. Not to say that it needs to be one person at the very top, but when you're organized and you're um, consistent and you're really smart about your decisions, then you get results. Yeah. Well, I think the activism that we came up with, I don't know if this is you know, the case in your life. But in the 90s, it was all about consumer activism. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think this is kind of the legacy, too, of farm to table in a sense, right? Of like going to the farmer's market is a radical act, right? Every like every um, 
every sustainably grown chicken that you buy and eat is like a political act which yes every every act that we do is political but like it's not it cannot be the be all end all of your like civic life right mm-hmm. your engagement with like macro scale economics or politics um I think like we kind of in the food world too we get so caught up in we don't do that door-to-door canvassing thing really right. with food right yeah um and the idea of buying stuff to 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 really express political will has no leader right also like right. like what you're saying it's not organized it's just this nebulous yeah. toothless yeah. ideology that doesn't get anyone out on the streets i'm getting so heated right now. <laughs> Turn it up right now. Oh, I'm so sorry. But no, I mean, it's an easy way for people to feel good about themselves, too. Like, you're telling me that I I bought this jug of lemonade from this black-owned lemonade shop. I'm part of the Black Lives Matter movement now, right? There's this really great piece in KQED, actually, recently, I think last month, by Ruth Gabrasis. And it was about the black-owned business lists that were happening kind of around the time of the protests against police violence. You know, she said that it seemed like a fucking restaurant week yeah and like yeah. as as a perpetrator of this right it was hard to read but it was also like yes you're right um this was my way of putting you know my time to work um but the way it was so enthusiastically received was so interesting yeah i mean i still get emails now where uh if i write about a black business like people will email me and be like how can how can we help if it's not you know if it's something they hadn't heard about I mean, like, I think it's one of those things, like, where it's the easiest thing to do, where, especially in the Bay Area, where a lot of the affluence is not relegated to POC communities, those people want to find a way to spend their money, to do the thing that they always do, which is spend money, and uh, support a movement without really, really having to get gritty, like, day after day. Right. It's just like, where do I put the money? And, like, yes... I think there's a big difference between that and like reparations, yeah, which is yeah. like a transformative kind of like monetary um, redistribution. You know, this is just like, like again, consumer activism. Yawn. Yeah, it's very comfortable. So I want to talk about today, too. Um, what are you up to right now? Like, what are you working on? Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. Uh, so, <laughs> you know. I will say that people have been sniffing around for their black representation. They just been sniffing around. And I am in one, in one direction, I'm saying no. And in another direction, I'm saying yes, just based on the circumstances, you know, it's case by case, but there is a moment of another moment of leverage that's happening because there is a groundswell of not only commitment, but openness for not just inclusion and diversity, which is a false sort of dog whistle moment, but for an actual destruction of broken systems and a building of something that is truly a liberated and, you know, sort of circumstance that's filled with equanimity as opposed to just a bile-filled industries that really feed on these premises of racism and sexism and classism. And that has been such a bittersweet experience, but I want to acknowledge that the sweet has been that I've been a writer my whole life and I don't need credentialing to know that. Like it's just been, I've actually been reticent to enter into systems that feel like they can't honor my story or my voice. 
I actually have a deep fear around the whitewashing of my black vernacular, for example, of being in an editing process where a white editor simply doesn't understand that the change of that one word makes it your voice as a white woman as opposed to my voice as a black woman. Like, I really don't want to interact with that. But in this moment, I feel called to be able to do that. And I feel um, the capacity to do that. And so that feels like a really important moment to take advantage of. Along with that, it's been the pandemic pivot. How do we get a sense of gathering? How do we get a sense of caretaking and community in the midst of physical distancing and in the midst of um, structures sort of really being in a, a rare form of sort of reconstruction and, and reconsideration of themselves? And so with Justice Kitchen, it's been a lovely moment to simply say, I'm here for Black women. And how can that be expressed in this current environment? And I've been sending out care packages uh, to Black women and FEMS in order to be supportive of that building of capacity to take advantage of this moment that is really important um, for us to get right um, so that we no longer go back to status quo or normal. And I've been mentoring uh, uh, Black women and FEMS as well in their launching of their activism. And that's sort of been a sweet outgrowth of the Tinder Soul sessions that I hold. And those have been able to pivot to a virtual setting. Uh, so at once there was the moment to be able to welcome people into my home. And, and so I've been able to find a version of that virtually where I create another, another kind of care package that has not only the opportunity to co-create a menu together uh, that is based on these stories of um, these stories of flavors and foods from one's home experience, um, one's family experience, and the spiritual reality of those stories and how it is inherently sacred and tied to a relationship that is with our ancestors, um, whether we acknowledge it or, or not. And so this care package includes not only the ingredients to cook the meal, it also includes, includes fabric and candle and the opportunity to be in that place of altar creation so that the experience that we have for about two hours online, about an hour and a half, two hours online, is something that can live in your home and can be built upon, can be expressed in different ways as folks are able to dive deeper into a relationship they have with food and ancestor and the earth. Um, it's still not quite the same, but I'll take it. I feel like what's happening in movement work right now there's direct action and there's indirect action, right? And those moments of being resourced come from both of those places. And we have to really be clear on what is required to stay in it. And right now, I am resourcing people to stay in it. Because despite the strength and power of Black women and FEMS, that will never be questioned. We are tender. We are also um, at risk for greater onset of racist interactions, both online and in real life. And so it is so important for me to let my community know that there is really enough resourcing in so many different um, ways uh, to find the support that's necessary to navigate both the joy of this moment and also the agony, quite frankly. 
You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Solejo, and I'm back with Jocelyn Jackson, the founder of Just Us Kitchen and the People's Kitchen Collective. This current moment, a lot of people are learning about mutual aid and what that means, but it's not a new thing. You know, I think many have practiced it for a long time in organizing and just in activist history. Um, can you talk about like what, like why mutual aid is something that you resonate with? And also like what, you know, as we start to talk about a way out of the sort of economic pit that a lot of the food food folks are kind of in, like what lessons we can take from that? It's a really important um, question of context uh, for me. So often we can get caught up in a news cycle that's dictating the language and the context of any particular uh, happening in our society. And that holds true for me when it comes to mutual aid. And for some reason, there's a need to, how to say, there's something about taking credit that really never resonates with me. And for that, I mean that once something becomes a trend, there's at the same time this need to take credit and ownership of something, which again is a perpetuation of these social ills of racism and sexism and capitalism. And that's why I think it is so important to say that these traditions have been handed down for generations, not because we know how to do it better, but because it was necessary for our survival. And it's really, really beautiful to see our instincts play out today uh, from a place that, like you said, is ancient. Because one of the first things you do in a crisis that I've learned both overtly and also uh, just through practice is that you caretake for the folks that are the most at risk first. You seek out the folks in your community that can have the most harm come to them and lift them up first whether that is elders or our Black trans women or people with ill health or children, any of these categories of people that have been marginalized the most in society, go there first. And if you see that anything that's happening in our society is causing those folks the most harm, that's also the place where activism resides. So it's both, right? The mutual aid that is instinctual is rising to a place of visibility that is Again, eliminating this falsehood that we are not connected. It is absolutely engendering this beautiful, beautiful reality that we are not alone and that we are absolutely supported within the networks of people, both near and far, uh, that we have in our community. And so because of this upliftment financially that's happened, um, because folks are getting into this place of how do we actually repair? How do we actually transform? How do we actually get out of the the festering pool of white supremacy and end up in a place that is absolutely for everyone? That upliftment that has been financial has supported all the ideas, all of the organizations that have had at the heart of their uh, initiatives something much bigger than was possible before this moment. And so it's being activated. And a lot of those are land and food projects. A lot of them, like it's amazing how many people um, in many directions, I've created a list right now that's uh, 20 strong of new projects, not to mention the ones that already exist. And that for me is an indicator of mutual aid. 
you know, before we go further, I just want to kind of pause and talk about like what mutual aid is. Because mm. we've been hearing the term floating around a lot. And I think for people who are new to it, it might be conceptually a little like weird to, to kind of understand. True. And even if you're running into it for the first time now, it technically mutual aid has roots that go back into like what's so like the eight, late 1800s. Just right. About. The term was sort of an answer to Darwin. Right. And like natural selection and the idea of like competition as like the means towards evolution. And I think where people really became uh, or where their reference point for what mutual aid is go, deals with the 1960s when the Black Panther Party was supplying these kind of like community oriented uh, benefits, things that they knew that they weren't going to get from the city and the state around them. So it's like. So like infrastructure type things. Exactly. And there were like free ambulance programs. There were like clinic programs. There was the thing that we all know, which was the free breakfast program for kids. Like, that's the really big thing. Um, You know, legal aid, education. Like, there were just so many things that they did uh, for each other, basically. Yeah. And, like, the thing about it that I find so resonant, you know, as I've been learning more about and educating myself about the principle, is that it's, you know, it's a horizontal mode of Mm. giving and receiving. Mm. Um, It's not so much, you know, like the, the... the saying of, gosh, this was so popular. We keep talking about the 90s and the 80s, but like the saying of like um, hand up, not a handout. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it implies a verticality to the relationship, right? An unevenness. Um, and there's also like the charity model, which is also like a, um, a kind of tested or institutional kind of model of giving. And it's kind of based on, you know, like... I'm here and you're below me and I'm right. going to give you something, right? Right, right. Charity. Um, mutual aid is not that. Yeah. It is just free giving. It is just like freely received, freely distributed. Um, there's no application, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's no means testing, which, you know, many nonprofits and public programs are very fond of. It is just, you know, mutual aid. It is like <laughs> everyone benefits if you benefit. right. And I, I think in the 60s, too, um, the Black Panther Party wanted mutual aid to be a thing that helped them at a time when the environment around them was against them, right? But not only that, they wanted it to be where when things got better around them, they still wouldn't need outsiders. So it was a way to kind of galvanize the black community at a time when they really needed it you know, the most. And that's something that always comes to mind for me. Mutual aid shouldn't be something that's just relegated to bad times. It should be a way for a community to kind of like invest in itself no matter what, even if times are good. Right. But like this current bad time, like the worst time the that worst, we're in. The worst of times. Has sparked so much mutual aid effort. Um, you know, it. we're seeing like fridges pop up in the East Bay, for instance, ah, yeah. full of food. There's no... You know, there's no questionnaire. There's no, like, card. There's no ID taken. Like, you just show up, you take some eggs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's it. No one asks any questions. You know, like, there's that. There's, like, the the medic groups at protests that offer free health care to anybody. Right. Um, maybe not cops. I don't know. But it's <laughs> up to them. Yeah. But, like, there's all of this stuff in the air that's making us happy. I mean, we're talking about it on this podcast for The Chronicle, right? Like, it's, right. it's part of the lexicon, and I think it's only going to become more so as we become more cognizant of how we depend on each other and and i hate to say this we're so we're in a pandemic and we always and we talk as if the pandemic will end one day and uh Uh. and we'll return and we'll return to normal but i think 
because of the longevity of this thing, of this situation, the unpredictability of it regarding like how long it'll last, I wonder if some of the things, like the other day I was walking through my neighborhood and saw um, these people that had basically fruit out in these containers and it was free for anyone to take. And before I th- would have thought it was just like a hipster kind of like, oh, we grew our own thing. Like, hey, everyone, you know, kind of check this out. But now I realize like people aren't working, like groceries are harder to get. This is a thing that could really, really benefit, you know, an individual, a household, like that might be a lunch that they didn't get. And I ho- and my hope is that in these moments while we're doing all this, that it lasts beyond whenever we hope that this pandemic kind of ends and we see some normalcy. Like, let this be in place long after. I hope this is a lesson we all kind of walk away this experience with. Um, I mean, certainly I've been to so many fancy dining rooms and restaurants, right, where I overhear conversations that are very much like social Darwinist in nature, you know, very much centered in competition as the reason for success, um, very much mired in selfishness as, you know, like the the whole thing about, for instance, um, the the selfish gene, the book by Richard Dawkins was like, you know, people who have similar genes are going to help each other, right? Mm. Like they want to spread those genes. They want to like preserve them. and like mutual aid is kind of it just flies in the face of that, right. you know, like right, right, right. you do not need to prove yourself to get anything. I think that is the baseline for that ideology. Um, and I think like that is if we can just like push social Darwinism away into the dark, into the muck where it belongs. Yeah, I think we'll all collectively be so much happier. We have this very specific opportunity to take advantage of all that's possible within our, not only history, you know, as far as the skill set, but our present, you know, uh, minds toward innovation when it comes to mutual aid and how it can be a lasting presence um, and not something that happens after a crisis. I'm never going to say new normal. That's not part of my lexicon. Uh, I'm going to say reclaiming ancient ways and traditional knowledge um, as the way that we perceive and move through the world from now on. I really appreciate all of the wisdom that you've given us and just really everything I've heard so far and I think has been so instructive and just so like you know heartfelt. So thank you. Thank you so much. Before we sign off, would you mind just saying like where folks can find you, your work, like how do they access you. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, in order to find People's Kitchen Collective, you can go online to our Facebook page. We can also find us on Instagram and with our own website, peopleskitchencollective.com. And with Justice Kitchen, there is the Justice Kitchen website, as well as the IG account. And just know that justice is not spelled J-U-S-T-I-C-E. It is spelled just us. It is a word taken from Huey P. Newton, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party. He said he went looking for justice and he found just us. So that was my interview with Jocelyn Jackson, the founder of Justice Kitchen and a co-founder of the People's Kitchen Collective. You can read the transcript of our full interview with Jocelyn at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else that you're obsessed with for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. 
If you like the Extra Spicy Podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 